Good morning. Welcome, welcome once again. It is the last weekend of May, and that means that summer is at our doorsteps. We hope that you spend this time doing outdoor activities, loving barbecues, watching fireworks, going out to the beach or the pool, more importantly, spending time with those whom you love. But today, today we hope that you are somewhere cool with your Bible in front of you as we talk about this idea of confusion that the lesson points us towards. Our campus here is a buzz because we are celebrating on this weekend baccalaureate services. That means that the graduation season has officially begun. And so today we take time to pray and to celebrate both our medical students and our dental students who are getting ready to engage in this new season of life as they go out into the world to continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus. I have a lot to talk about, and so without any further ado, I'd invite you to pray with me as we begin our conversation. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being our compass in a world of confusion. We ask that Christ continue to be our North Star. We pray that you bless our conversation, for we do so in your name. Amen. Canopies are out, Joey. That means graduation season is here. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting for all the graduates. It's exciting for all the families of the graduates mm -hmm. who have supported their graduates through many years of academic achievement, and they're finally there, finally ready to enter the workforce. And yeah, yeah. That new, newness is always exciting, graduation season. Oh, it's exciting. I uh, I get to see some of some of our students, some of the students that we see in class, mm -hmm. um, some of the students that I, that I journeyed with, particularly from the School of Dentistry, are now stepping into the world, and that's exciting. Um, also, uh, the daughter of our head elder is graduating. Mm -hmm. She's graduating from medical school and um, Harvard beckons. So. <laughs> I know. Incredibly uh, smart girl. We're so is. proud of her and excited for all of our, our graduates. Carla, I know you might not want to be watching because this is a busy weekend for you, but if you catch us, congratulations. Uh, Richard, Terry, congratulations. So, Joey, this lesson deals with confusion. Mm. And that's that's ideally uh, the way we un we ought to understand, I think, Babylon. And I think that's a great place to begin um, by actually looking and thinking about Babylon. Often when we delve into Revelation, we think of Babylon as a place. Mm. And it seems like in John's mind, Babylon is less of a place and more of a mindset. Yeah, a mindset that pervades different groups throughout mm. the history mm. of this world. So Babylon isn't just one power, right? right? It's not it's not located in one spatial history. It's not only it's also not located in any chronological mm -hmm. point. It actually invades throughout the time and it's it's actually really you can argue began at the time of Satan when mm. Satan rebelled against God it's an ethic that he followed it's a mindset that he had and it's one that flows it's it's flown parallel to guide God's mm. mindset ever since so this idea then that instead of looking at places and people mm. we look at ideas and ways of interpreting existence. It seems then that Babylon is not something that happens in the eschaton or the end times. It is something that we are constantly called, as you're saying, to be alert to. And I think the one detail that, that continues to emerge as you read uh, this long history is this idea of Babel confusion. Mm. And this idea that though... Uh, the word of God and the way God wants us to understand him is elegant in its simplicity. Um, we spend a lot of time studying and uh, get a lot of letters after our names and use some big words sometimes. But the truth of the matter is that the way God wants to relate to us is actually quite simple. Mm. Uh, it's not simplistic, but it is simple and it is clear. And so Babylon is the attempt to take this simple idea mm. 
and make it much more confusing. Yeah, I love the idea that you're talking about confusion as distortion, right? <laughs> distortion of the message of God. Mm. And the the author of the lesson does a good job talking about that, that this this is a distortion of the way of God, the mindset of God, the, the doctrines of God, if you want to describe it that way, that there is a twisting that's happening here. And Satan, there's no, re I mean, there's no wonder that Satan is called the great deceiver, mm -hmm. right? Because that that is what he does. He um, somebody said that Satan is LSD, Lucifer, Satan, and the devil, because he distorts the way that you see things. <laughs> that's good. Right? I like that. That's good. <laughs> that's, that's, that really is the perspective of Babylon. Babylon is a distortion and twisting of, of, of God's way, which is why, you know, God's, God's church in, in Revelation is portrayed as this, as a woman. And then the distortion of that Babylon is portrayed as a harlot right mm -hmm. a distortion of that woman mm -hmm. and so that's um yeah i love that idea that and that that has been present of course it's going to be present at the end of time but it's not only present at the end of right. time it's been present in our past it's present in our present and it will be present in the future as well mm. and this is why i think then the author reaches back to history and, and talks about babel itself right mm -hmm. the story for those of you who have forgotten uh here are human beings not taking god at god's word and attempting to create a tower that goes all the way up into the abode of the gods. Mm -hmm. And the implication then is the same implication that occurs when, when Satan rebels, right? I want to be God. And so we mm -hmm. create these pathways to heaven without realizing that the one, the only one who can create a pathway is God. Mm -hmm. And so this is what the fancy word that we use sometimes is this is the divine kenosis, the emptying of God mm -hmm. as he seeks to bridge time and space. It seems then that this is the temptation that we face, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To constantly attempt at supplanting God. Idolatry, yeah. after all, is nothing more than an attempt to supplant God by something that, as you are saying, is distorted. Yeah. And how, how easy it is for us to do that, that even those of us who um, claim to follow God, claim to follow Jesus, claim to live in the way of the Lamb, it is so easy for us to take on qualities of that mm. distortion. I like how the lesson talked about how Babylon has elements of in incorporating human ways into into the divine, mm -hmm. right? And um, we can take that as, okay, well, it's human philosophy. That's part of it. But it's also our human, our human instincts of, and we've talked about this before, of using power and authority, our human ways of getting what we want. And I, I remember there, the book that we've been reading as a staff peacemaker, the author talks about idolatry in that book and how idolatry, like anything can be an idol. Mm. We think of things as being idols, but even desires he talks about can be idols and how even good desires, like the desire for my child to listen to me, that's a good desire. Obedience is something that the Bible teaches, right? So it's a good desire, but that can also become an idol when we want that so badly that we're willing to use human ways to get that instead mm -hmm. of following God's ways, mm -hmm. right? When I'm willing to use force and to use manipulation and use all of these other things to get that good desire, that good desire now becomes an idol because I'm willing to not follow God's way, instead follow my own way to get that desire. So that desire becomes more important than God. And these desires, as I think you're stating, are often good things. Mm -hmm. But when we when we place them in improper places or we leverage them in improper ways, 
they become confusing and they become confusing in the sense that they mar the actual point of the desire building and collaboration and i was thinking about the original tower of babel this week a lot and we talk about this a lot right how building and collaboration are really really important tools to have in a team to have a team that is working together that is of one mindset that has missional unity that understands processes and procedures this is a dream mm. but even that desire to make something good can be distorted when we're not understanding the purpose of uh, collaboration or the purpose of working together um, I think what happens then is often we like to build our own towers mm. and they might not be literal towers after wow. all we say hey um, we're not going to build a Sikorot tower here. That that was them. But but we tend to do that theologically often. Mm -hmm. We build this, these theological towers where we say, if I only do enough, I can get myself to heaven. Mm -hmm. If I um, ultimately am able to prove that I'm worthy, then I can get myself to heaven. The biggest problem I think that a lot of us within Adventism have with this idea of last generation theology, isn't it's, I think, powerful focus on the law. I think the law is a good thing. I don't think it's there, It's powerful focus on the Sabbath. We've talked about the Sabbath and how momentous a doctrine it can be. I think the problem of last generation theology is it's an attempt to build a tower mm -hmm. where the focus ceases to be on God and it becomes a people that are able to justify God's law and God's character. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, I think it's really easy to get distorted because we can very quickly shift from saying salvation is grace-based Salvation is God's ultimate attempt to descend and inundate us with his presence. And then we make salvation this process of building a tower that we have to climb in order to ascend to where God dwells. Yeah. And since some, some of our listeners may not be um, familiar with this term, last generation theology, um, could you explain a little bit about what what last generation theology is knowing that it's impossible to encapsulate all of it in in just the minutes that yeah. we have just as a brief synopsis of this idea of last generation yeah. theology um and again some some of it, its proponents might disagree but i think practically what it boils down to is mla andreasen um said that in the end the real question is is it possible to maintain God's law hmm. is God's. So the focus, and I think it's a, I think it's part, it's scriptural, right? The law does play a role, but for, for proponents of this view, uh, sanctification and the observance of the law are important. And in order to prove that that observance is not arbitrary, that humans can indeed uh, keep the law perfectly, it says that in the end, there's going to be a people, a remnant people, who after the close of probation are able to keep the law perfectly. Mm. And they're not, let's, let's make it clear and be fair to them. They're not saying that they're, they will be able to do that in order for them to be saved. That's not what the idea is. The idea is they're already saved, but now uh, the whole universe needs to understand that God's law is not arbitrary, that God is not author uh, authoritarian. And so there are going to be some people that keep the law perfectly. And some of us, so so some of us might say, well, yeah, they're still saying that grace saves you and then your capacity to keep the law perfectly is something that the Spirit does. But in the end, practically and functionally what happens is that the shift, there is a shift in focus, right, from God to a group of people, to a remnant people. And I think that whatever position you want to take on that, mm. that it does become very confusing um, and it can create some confusion when when you have 
a group of people become the litmus test for God's character rather than God's care than God being the own the litmus test for his own character yeah that that God needs humans to prove his mm -hmm. character yeah it's I mean there like we said there's a lot of good motivations mm -hmm. that are driving this, right? And this is something that um, Adventists, if we're being honest with Adventist history, that Adventists have taught, mm -hmm. right? Um, in the past, and um, some some Adventists still teach today, this, this idea that God is waiting for this last generation that is, that is, that has been cleansed completely of sin, that they are, they are not um, beholden to sinful motivations anymore, and they think he keep the God God's law perfectly, um, and that that's going to happen before Jesus returns. And God, and if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, and um, I'm sure people will tell me if I'm not. <laughs> oh, they will. <laughs> is that that um, God is waiting mm -hmm. for that to happen mm -hmm. before He returns, mm -hmm. and. And the good motivations behind this is that, yes, that we, the, the desire to show that God has the power to cleanse people from mm -hmm. sin, that God, that it is, that, that God's law is not arbitrary, mm -hmm. like you said, that it's holy, that it's, it's keepable, which is why it's also related to this belief that God, that Jesus was, had a, a sinful nature and that he was able to overcome that, um, and not sin, even though he had that sinful nature. And that's been a big debate within our church. Mm -hmm. It was Jesus. Um, the term is the fancy word is pre-lapsarian or post-lapsarian nature, right? Like did he, which is kind of a funny word. It's the lapse, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why we made it lapsarian. So Jesus was um, Adam's, had Adam's nature after the fall of sin or before the fall of sin. So that's, that's why that debate is so important to people who, um, who, are proponents of last generation theology. All those those motivations are good to show that the law is holy, that God can cleanse us from sin. All of those things are good. What you're pointing out is the danger is that um, if we believing that and putting a priority to that, the danger of that is that it could lead us to focus on ourselves mm. and focus on our behavior and to start putting measuring sticks. Are we living up to it? How close are we? Like God is waiting for me to mm -hmm. do this and, and, and almost going into a place. It can lead to going to a place of shame where if, when we are not able to keep it, the law perfectly, we start believing, Oh, maybe God isn't working in my life mm. right now. Whereas what the Bible seems to teach is to focus on Jesus and let him worry about that. Let him worry about the transformation. So focus on those that relationship with Jesus to focus on um, engaging in that relationship through and it, through different practices and habits and you know engaging in worship. What we talk about here in the discipleship journey is that it has elements of worship, of service, of community. Like focus on engaging with God and with other people in that and allow God to grow the fruits of the spirit within us and not worry about continuing to check ourselves to make sure that we're measuring up. Yeah. 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 And that's why I love the idea that you're saying focus on Jesus. C.S. Lewis, I think in mere Christianity does an exceptional job of, at least for me. And again, Adventism as you're, as you're dealing, as you're stating has dealt with a long time uh, about these debates on the nature, on Christology or the nature of Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, makes a really good point. He says, and at least for me, it settles the debate. He says, if Jesus were indifferent, then I wouldn't need Jesus. And he gives a really powerful analogy. He says, look, suppose living and breathing and being born into this world is like being born into a into a river that is threatening to sweep you away and you are being carried away by the current drowning the last thing you need is to focus on somebody that's running down the same river uh, being carried with the current and mm -hmm. so he says the power of jesus is that Jesus is both has one leg inside the river, and mm. so he can feel the pressures of the current. Mm. He can feel uh, the 
purer of the of the water but his whole body isn't in the river mm. because in order to pull you out, he's got to have one leg on dry land. Mm. And I found that analogy so simple, but I think because uh, like many great writers, Lewis realizes that the simplest analogies free you from confusion. Yeah. Um, it's extremely powerful. I don't want to focus on myself. Actually, I don't want Jesus to be like me. Mm. I want to try to be like Jesus, but there has to be a point where I recognize that there is a vast difference uh, spiritually, ontologically, or with being. Uh, there has to be a difference because... He is the one in whom all my hopes are placed, and he is the one that has got one foot solidly in the water, but also one foot cemented on dry land. That's so powerful. And that's the miracle of the incarnation, mm -hmm. right? Because the reality is that Christ, even, even if we were to say that he took on the nature, the post-lapsarian nature, the reality is he's still 100% God, mm -hmm. right? That's the incarnation. He's 100% human, 100% God. And I am not 100% God. Right. So there is no way that Jesus is exactly the mm -hmm. same as me, right? Mm -hmm. So there is, there is a functional difference and our hopes rest on the fact of that difference. Because if Jesus were exactly like me, then it means that any old sinner, as long as they kept the law perfectly, could have died mm -hmm. for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And we don't believe that. I don't think anybody believes that. Any any evidence believes that Jesus that Jesus that Jesus didn't need to be fully God in order to accomplish what he did. Right. He was both fully God and he's fully man. And that is the mystery of the incarnation. That is why confusion occurs with these terms, right? There, there has the first confusions within within the Christian Church were on Christology. It was, well, who is this Jesus? And so you had uh, Docetism. Jesus isn't really human. You had Arianism, which said, no, 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 Jesus was human. He was a create, or he was a creature. He was a created being. And so there were these debates on the nature of Christ because. Um, that, I think, is fertile ground for confusion. And once you start doubting the nature of Christ, once you start being uncomfortable with the, and you said it perfectly, the mystery of the incarnation, uh, you can make salvation about a myriad of things. Mm -hmm. The reality is, we Christians, Orthodox Christia Christianity has always thought Jesus is both human and divine. And Orthodox Christianity has thought, has taught that Friday, Good Friday, is every bit as important as Resurrection Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so if the only purpose was, hey, we need uh, somebody to pay for hum humanity's sins, then you're right. Any old sinner or any creature who, who was able to keep the law would be would be an appropriate sacrifice but because sunday uh without resurrection sunday good friday is nothing more than a tragedy it needed to be god because only god could defeat the biggest enemy which isn't sin sin is not the biggest foe we face death is the biggest foe we hmm. face and so it had to be god in order to defeat that foe. And I think when when we when we don't focus on the entirety of the gospel, that's when confusion, that's when Babylon starts to creep in. Yeah, that's powerful. And it the reality is that the only way that we are able to keep the law is because mm -hmm. Jesus died for mm -hmm. us and that he was God and that he was man. Mm -hmm. And you know, I believe that there's going to come a time when our sinful natures are completely healed, right? And the brokenness in the, inside of us are completely fixed. I do believe there's gonna be a time that that happens. But even when that happens, there'll still be a vast difference between mm -hmm. me and Jesus. Like even though God is living in me and he, is, he, is, he has healed me and he has made me, um, he has helped make me into the person that I was always meant to be, even though all of that happens, I will still be different than Jesus ever was, right? Mm. Even though he's God and man, 
he's still going to be very different than us. And that's the reality of the fact that he is God. Mm -hmm. And that is the very first sit, the very first deception was that us thinking that we could be on the same level mm -hmm. as God, even though even the God who made himself man to come to, to live on this earth and die for our sins. That is why it's so important to have a faith system that is completely focused on its Christology. That is why Christology needs to be the crux of whatever belief system you have, right? Jesus needs to be at the center. If you don't believe that, if you believe that human beings, that the remnant ought to be at, at, at the center of the great controversy, then I've got news for you. You can be many other things. There's a, there's a brilliant faith tradition out there loving, committed, great people. Uh, they're called Latter-day Saints. They're great. That's what they believe. Mm. They believe that in the end, if you're able to live properly, you will be a god and you will go up and you will resurrect and create your own universe and be the god of that universe. That's great. But that's not Adventism and that's not Orthodox Christianity. And I think um, without trying to disparage our brethren in other faith traditions, I choose to be Adventist because my focus continues to be that Christ needs to be the crux of, our, of any confession we make. Mm. And so whether it's now or whether it's at the end, whenever the end is, Christ still needs to be the center, the central character and the protagonist of the great controversy. Mm. And that seems to be the message of Revelation, right? That we need, that it is a call to focus on the Lamb. Mm -hmm. Like the lamb is the centerpiece, even though in this, you know, the chapters that were discussed in this lesson in chapter 12 and chapter um, uh, 17, were we in, um, that even in those passages, it does focus on the beast and the women and, and all of these things. It's still pointing us to the lamb and the lamb's way. And the differentiation between these two women seem like you say, to, to be a difference in, in approach to are they following the way of the lamb or are they following the way of the beast, mm. the way of Babylon, the way of confusion, the way of distortion? Mm. Right. And this is, I think, why and we're going to jump into the text a little bit. So Revelation 12, you have this depiction, right, of the woman mm -hmm. and the woman is pursued uh, by the dragon and the woman is, is, uh, is being uh, hunted, if, if you would, by the dragon who is seeking uh, to murder her before uh, she gives birth to the child. And for John, I think this is clear, yeah. right? Uh, it's clear who the woman is. It's clear who the child is, right? Um, and I think even within, within scholarship, within Revelation, there's not that much uh, differentiation, at least on these characters. Yeah. Pretty much it's understood that the child is Jesus and the woman is the church. church. Um, so, but... I, I find really fascinating the language that he couches uh, this whole experience into, because often when we talk about the church, let's face it, when we talk about the church, when we start talking about ecclesiology, we often ta start talking about institutions and structures. Mm. And what I find fascinating is that John utilizes language mm. to connect us to the history of the woman, even before there was a quote unquote Christian church, mm. right? He talks about the woman going to the wilderness. He talks about the woman be being carried into the wilderness uh, on the eagle's wings, making a clear reference to uh, the prophetic, prophetic writings in uh, places like Isaiah, for example. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about the serpent spewing water from its mouth. And we know uh, that the serpent and the water are clear connections. You have clear connections to the book of Genesis and even the primordial chaos, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the chaos when uh, the, the great, uh, for the Canaanite mind, the great sea serpents that inhabited water as the ultimate uh, description of chaos and, so, and how Yahweh comes and defeats the serpent and opens up a space for uh, the created order, even in the midst of the chaos. So it seems that while we agree on what, on who the woman is and who the child is, John doesn't have institutions 
and structures in mind. John has something else in mind when he starts describing this woman. Yeah, because the woman that he's describing existed before any institutions Correct. existed. Correct. Right? Yeah, that's that's so powerful to recognize because so, I mean, there is there is such a temptation when we're reading this because we're human to identify the the woman with a certain group that is us, mm -hmm. that I'm a part of, mm -hmm. right? Whatever subset of the world that I'm a part of, that's what the woman refers to. Whereas, yes, I may be part of the woman. I may be a part of the church, but it isn't because I'm a part of a certain group that I'm a part of the woman. It's not because I'm a part of a certain institution that I'm a part of the woman, right? The people of God has always been broader and more narrow than that. Mm. Powerfully said, powerfully said. So if John doesn't have structures or institutions, what does he have in mind? And I would like to submit that what John has in mind is this wonderful act where salva even salvation, and by salvation we understand it, we understand that to be the proclamation of the gospel, that this is a collaborative effort, to be sure. Jesus is the initiator and the finisher of our faith. But there is a role to play for human beings from the very beginning of history. Mm. From the very beginning of history, all yeah. the way back in the book of Genesis, the woman has a role to play. Yeah. And so that is so powerful because throughout history, generation after generation, regardless of gender, age, ethnicity, um, God has a plan for human beings to collaborate in this act of salvation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder now that you, when you were saying that it, it did bring to mind what God says to Adam and Eve mm -hmm. after the, the fall um, and how salvation would come from the womb mm -hmm. of a woman. And I'm, I, I, don't, I never thought of that before, but maybe that is part of what John was thinking about and what God was thinking about when he gave this vision to God, to John, of this idea of the woman giving birth mm -hmm. to the savior of the world. Yeah. 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 And it's powerful because there is a place to put. We started our conversation by saying we are not the protagonists mm -hmm of the great controversy, but there's still a role for us to play. Mm. And if the woman is not a particular group of people, it's not a system or it's not an institution, then when we jump to Revelation 17, we probably ought to begin by saying that the harlot also cannot, because the harlot is the counterpoint to that woman. Come on so now. <laughs> the harlot cannot be a group of people yeah. or an institution or a system. It has to be something broader than that. Wow. Now you're starting to challenge us a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, we started with something that we could all agree and say amen to. Yes, yes. But that does make sense um, because the imagery is the same. So if the woman is not a particular institution, mm -hmm. if the woman is not a particular church, and I think, although although we t tie it, you know, sometimes we think that, yeah, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, we've said the, at times the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the remnant church. Mm -hmm. But what we mean by that and how it's even written in our doctrines is that there's a remnant people, mm -hmm. right? And that we recognize the remnant people will even mm. at the end of time, will not be tied to a certain mm. institution because the institutions will fail to function. Mm. In, in traditional Adventist um, eschatology, we believe that the traditional structures will no longer exist. So it will be a people who are following the way of the Lamb that, that it's pointing to. So if it's not tied to, even at the end of time, it's not tied to a certain um, institution, then it... It makes sense that the the distortion of that is not tied to a certain mm -hmm. institution, which is why we've we said at the beginning, Babylon, Babylon is not just one person, one group, one period of time. Babylon has existed ever since sin has existed and will continue to exist until sin is made over and made new. And the only way that that can happen is by exposing it for what it is. Yeah. And so I think it's important to, to actually delve into scripture because Pastor Miguel and Pastor Joey are saying, 
Yeah, the the woman in Revelation 12 and the woman in the harlot in Revelation 17 are counter points of each other. And you're probably scratching your said your head saying, "Well, how do they get that?" Well, it's in the text. It's pretty clear in the text. Uh, Revelation 17:3. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Again, you have this place of uh, the same place, right? The wilderness, wilderness in in Revelation 12 and Revelation 17. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Revela woman of Revelation 12 is carried to the wilderness by a by an eagle. Revelation uh, 17, you have a woman, uh, another woman, but this woman is sitting on top of the beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And again, uh, these horns and this head, these heads throughout Revelation. Uh, mean several things. They can mean several things uh, throughout people. Uh, some people make an argument that the heads and the horns are the seven hills on which Rome was built and the ten uh, Roman empires that preceded uh, John's writing of it. There's many other there's many other interpretations. Um, but I think what's important is that we keep those interpretations, as you're saying, open. That yes, they can mean Rome. That yes, they can mean 12, 10 barbarian tribes. That yes, they can mean um, a myriad of different things. And then what you have is this is the woman and the woman is Babylon, the mother of prostitutes and the abomination of the earth. And the woman is drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. What I find to be really, really important here is that we just notice that what this woman has done is he, she has created drunkenness. Mm -hmm. And if you remember your Old Testament, there is a clear connection that John is trying to make. Mm. You remember, for example, the sin of Israel at Baal Peor, right? Uh, with uh, the great apostasy that Balaam leads. Mm -hmm. This is this this kind of language harkens back to that, and it ultimately then becomes an issue not of a system or an institution or a structure, but it becomes an issue of who are you worshiping and why are you worshiping uh, these, particular, uh, these particular people? So the association between both the imagery of both um, drunkenness and the imagery of being a harlot actually mm -hmm. is, is present throughout the Old mm -hmm. Testament as following other gods, mm -hmm. following other idols, following other or other religious frameworks than rather than following mm -hmm. God. I mean you read you read the prophets and the the connection that they make is seamless, right? Between idolatry and between harlotry. Mm -hmm. You have played the harlots as uh, says Yahweh of his people. And so it's clear that the issue isn't simply um an issue of uh, this the system or the structure that is going to appear and uh, define itself as the as the woman or as the beast. Rather, it is an issue of worship, mm -hmm. and it is more importantly an issue of who are you worshiping and why are you worshiping. Yeah, it actually reminds me of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, I've been reading it um, for my devotions, and it is so incredibly. I, I had I had forgotten how incredibly graphic mm, Ezekiel yeah, is brutal, about about the 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 way that it describes the Israelites uh, or the or um, Judy um, uh, the the Southern Kingdom's harlotry mm -hmm. that they did with 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 Babylon and with Assyria and in Egypt. It's so graphic describing like genitals and, and mm -hmm. all of that. It's, but because, and I, I, and I, I had to ask myself, why is God describing it this way? But there is that direct connection you're talking about to that, that you are playing the harlot. Like he wants to, he wants to emote a certain feeling, not only say you have wandered away from me, but it seems like God is trying to communicate a certain emotion. He wants to emote a certain visceral, like um, sickening feeling of doing this. Like you have done this, you should feel sick inside that you've done this. Mm -hmm. And he seems to be trying to emote that same type of thing with the imagery of this woman. That's exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to make these connections that are going to real that are going to make create a visceral uh, response from you. Yeah. What I think is fascinating is that 
this the connection here with between the woman and the heads and the horns is a clear connection between a religious and a political system that have now come together to become mm-hmm. oppressive heads and horns are used and even later on in the chapter uh it seems like amidst the myriad of symbolism that John decides to share in Revelation 17, he does share some concrete uh, things. Verse 15, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are people, multitudes, nations, the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What I find really, really interesting is that in the end, the ultimate fate of the woman is not decided by God. And this seems to be something that uh, I, this is one of the reasons why we, I know it sounds like every week we are promoting Sigva's commentary, but this is, I think, one of the most powerful things he noticed, Mm. he notes, and that is that God throughout the book of Revelation doesn't use violence, Mm. that the violence is a tool that is employed by the beast and by the woman. And so it seems like this Mm. religious and political marriage is going to break down because oppressive ideologies ultimately tend to cannibalize each other. Wow. Wow. And that's really when when our good desires become idols, mm-hmm. when we're willing to use violence, when we're u- willing to use beastly ways mm-hmm. to get what the lamb wants. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's I mean, if, if anything, that seems to be the lamb like beast. Mm-hmm. Right. Where we where we guise our idols under the the guise of saying, well, this is a good thing. It's a good thing for my children to obey me. It's a good thing for um, the people of God to keep the law. It's a good, like, these are good things. But if we ever use, and I'm not accusing anybody of doing this, but if we ever start using beastly ways to get those good things, we know that we're in trouble. Mm. And I've seen this in myself um, as a parent. As a parent, there's times when I wanted certain things that are good bad enough that I will use shame. Mm-hmm. I will use manipulation. I will, I will use these beastly tools to get what I, what mm-hmm. I think is good. And when I do that, I betray that actually that good desire has now become an idol mm-hmm. within me. And the, the, the tragedy is that these good desires often will, will eat up uh, the things that you value the most. Um, we, we religious people, um, love to, to, to call people to accountability. And I think accountability is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Don't make it. Accountability is necessary. Mm-hmm. Sin is a serious problem and it demands being dealt with. Mm-hmm. But I think often we disguise our own proclivities for sin under the guise of righteous indignation. Mm-hmm. And as you're saying, that's when we become the beast. I don't think it's a, it's a secret that religion, faith, mm. churches lately have gotten a really bad rap in the global marketplace of ideas. Um, being a pastor used to be a respected uh, profession that carried with it some inherent trust. Now... Mm. I feel sometimes when I when I tell people I'm a pastor, I feel it's something akin to uh, to being viewed as a used car salesman. Mm. Uh, when people ask you on a, on a flight, what do you do? Um, I I always hesitate. Uh, I always have some hesitation, mm. and the reason why I hesitate is because I think. Uh, that shuts down the conversation many times. Whereas mm. where if I say, oh, well, I'm a professor, it's, it's a little bit different. Mm. Um, and you find churches being places for, of abuse. You find pastors being, uh, being people who are spiritually abusive. You find pastors who are not living up to those expectations that God has for us. You have pastors who fall and uh, they have to leave ministry and uh, the couch term for it is the moral failures. Mm-hmm. 
And I often used to rant and rail from the comfort of my home against this. I was like, man, these people are giving us a really bad name. Hmm. I've changed that, that, uh, that discourse a bit. And I haven't changed it because I think that spiritual abuse isn't a thing. I haven't changed it because I'm Pollyannish and I don't think sin needs to be dealt with. Mm. I've changed it because I've realized that if we put my life under scrutiny for long enough, I'm not going to measure up. Mm. It's just that the places that I fail are more socio socially acceptable. Mm. But for God, they're not, they're no different. Mm. And so I love what some of our brethren in traditions like Foursquare do, where when a pastor makes a mistake, when a congregant makes a mistake, a serious mistake, they promote and push accountability. Mm. But they also create a path of restoration. Wow. And the reason why they do that is because that's the way of the lamb. Mm. The lamb, the beast seeks to create confusion by making promises that no and, and that that the beast can't keep and by forcing us to live up to standards that we can't meet mm. so the beast can't keep its promises we can't meet the standards mm. the lamb says you don't have to mm. because i keep my promises and the point of and the reason what what happens when you start recognizing that you can't live up to the standards is that what you is you realize that what you need it is is not standards it's restoration mm. so i think the way that we become more lamb-like is we continue protecting our flocks mm. we continue protecting the people that are in our church but alongside that we create pathways to restoration yeah because where would we all be if there was no path mm to restoration. That is so powerful. I think I've mentioned before a book called Unpunishable by Danny Silk. And he talks about how we in the church have a love affair with punishment. Mm -hmm. And he defines punishment as trying to get our pound of flesh um, for someone who's done something wrong and make it fair again. Mm -hmm. So you hurt this person, we're going to hurt you a commensurate amount. And once you've been hurt, then you can come back and do, do your thing. But we don't actually deal with the underlying problem of sin. We don't do accountability. We don't actually spend the difficult road of journeying with a person who has had a moral failing. We don't, we don't journey with them on the path of healing. And of course, that takes responsibility on that part, person's mm -hmm. part. They have to own it. They have to be willing to take that long road. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's gone through therapy or who has got, who's gone through the process of discipleship where God is healing a sin within us knows that that's not a, a okay, I pray mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it's gone. That, that idol, that brokenness, whatever you want to call it, remains for a long time. And it takes time understanding it. It takes time engaging with God, allowing him to heal us. But we don't actually lead people through that process. Instead, we take the easier path, which is, okay, I'm just going to punish you and then wait a, a bunch of time and then you can come back, mm -hmm. right? And hopefully God has done something for you. And that is sad because that's not what God does. Mm -hmm. God does journey with people through brokenness. When I look at the lives of the patriarchs, mm. How long did God journey with Abraham? How long did God journey with Jacob? How long did God journey with Joseph, right? All these people that were broken and we see their brokenness on display with David. For how long we see that brokenness on display over and over and again, God doesn't give up on them. God continues to challenge their sin, but also helps them to grow mm. and Maybe we as a church need to follow the lamb a little bit better. So I'll tell you who who take who always exacts their pound of flesh. The beast. Mm. The beast cannibalizes. The beast eats up the woman. So when we hear of people who have committed sin, um, and more importantly, public sin, which is, you know, these very public moral failures, we eat them up. Mm. Right? Uh. We say, you're not like us away um we haven't we want nothing to do with you um that first off isn't taking sin, sin seriously mm. 
Because taking sin seriously uh, recognizes that sin causes pain and that the first step in healing, if I've sinned against, against somebody, the first step in recognizing that is for me to go and ask for forgiveness and try to make amends. Mm -hmm. That cannot happen if we eat each other up and we yeah. banish each other. So first off, it doesn't take sin seriously, but more importantly, it doesn't take grace seriously. Mm -hmm. um, because what, you're, what I hear you saying is, I not only am I going to invite you to walk this long path where you, where you have accountability, where you take responsibility, but more importantly, I am going to walk that path with you mm -hmm. in order to encourage you as God restores you. And that isn't cannibalizing one another. Mm -hmm. That's loving one another. So when you ask, are we a lamb-like church, church or are we a beast-like church? Are we a confused church? Just ask the question, how do we react to sin? Do we ignore it? Do we push it away? Do we... Make it someone else's problem. Do we exclude and excommunicate those who fall in sin? Or are we courageous enough to take sin seriously, to create systems and structures of accountability, of responsibility, and of healing? But more importantly, do we have the capacity for the discomfort that it takes to say, you're broken, so am I. I'm going to walk with you. Wow, that's so powerful. Yeah, and that's a question we should be asking ourselves all the time because, like we said, it's so easy to fall into the way of the beast. Mm. Well, Joey, uh, as always, it's been a pleasure conversing with you. Let's have a word of prayer as we conclude. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, we ask that you help us to keep our eyes on you, that we don't rely, we don't slip into this terrible way that we have of relying on ourselves, on relying on our own methods, on relying our own ways, but instead to follow the sometimes more difficult path that you lead us through of restoration and healing, not only for ourselves, but for others as well. Help us to follow you and keep our eyes on you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So may God restore you today and always. Mm -hmm.